the pain, the anger at some point kicked in. The why, because the why, why, why will you do this? Why would my mom do this? Why would she make this decision? Why was I put to this? What's the point of it? The why? Because I have now spent months at this center understanding that this thing was meant to be bad. This thing that this lady was talking about, this FGM. It has health consequences from if you're, you're lucky to not bleed to death, so it can be murder. You have infections, you have UTIs, infertility, cysts, fibroid, sexual dysfunction, uh, trauma, depression. It was the gift that literally fucking keeps giving. It doesn't stop. I'm going, why would my mom want that for me? Why would she want that to be my reality? Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping limoncello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Khadija Blah is one of the most phenomenal people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. At the age of just three, she was forced to flee Sierra Leone when war broke out and her father was killed. She then spent the next 10 years in a refugee camp in Gambia when her family was accepted to resettle in Adelaide. As she was getting used to her new life here in Australia, she was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Then one day, while reading a pamphlet about female genital mutilation, the memories came flooding back. And suddenly she remembered she too was a victim, cut with a rusty knife in a hut when she was just nine years old. Khadija is now a fearless anti-FGM campaigner, working tirelessly to educate doctors, police and the community about the practice. She also co-founded the Desert Flower Centre, the first of its kind in the Asia-Pacific region, specialising in providing medical care and reconstructive surgery for women impacted by FGM. She also runs a cultural consultancy agency, working with huge companies and brands across the country to implement policy on domestic and family violence, child protection, racism, human rights, refugees and cultural diversity. And somehow she also finds the time to be a single mum to her five-year-old son, Sammy. Now, I've split this chat into two parts. The first will talk about Khadija's story from her early years to finding out she was an FGM survivor. A language warning with this one. Also, just a heads up, if you've got little ears around, we also discuss exactly what FGM is. I've got no doubt you'll be just as enthralled by Khadija as I was. Here she is. Khadija, you may be one of the most incredible people I've ever spoken to, so I'm so honoured you are here chatting with me today. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me, and I'm so excited we were able to make it happen. I'm so, so, so thrilled we're making this happen. When I was doing my research on you, I was like, how the hell did I get this incredible woman to speak to me? So I'm very, 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 very thankful and blessed. Oh, you are too kind, way too kind. (laughs) How is isolation life going for you and your son? I just have to get that out of the way oh well look this COVID-19 
pandemic has turned our lives upside down. I, what, three, four weeks ago, I was out and about. I was at the pub having extra hot chili, you know, chicken wings <laughs> with girlfriends with a Prosecco. You know, I am out here with my little baby boy, he's five, and just, you know, being able to take him out for play dates and have him run around and use up all that energy so that mama can actually survive and stay sane. And all of a sudden, our lives have been turned upside down. Now I am, you know, home stuck with him trying to stay sane, but in a new way, can't really go anywhere <laughs> to get all that energy out. And But I think for someone like me who, you know, I, I juggle so much as a single mom, um, I run my own business, I'm an activist, I run a whole center. They, they, I'm used to being busy. I'm used yeah. to having freedom to go out and about. I'm always in a plane going to another state sitting still and not having that freedom, well, that, that will mess with you. So I sort of feel like the predominant emotion I have been feeling a lot is grief. Mm. I feel like I'm grieving the, the, what this year was meant to be. 2020 was meant to be the level up year. You know, 2019 so did not play with us. So no. it was like 2020 better come correct is what I was thinking. 2020 is when I level up. One hundred. This is exactly gonna... what I said. I was like, Does 2020 is this year. This is happening. And then yeah. a few months in, it's like 2020 is like, no. eh, you know, all those hopes and dreams and everything you wanted to achieve this year. Yeah, no, nah, that's not happening. Next year, maybe better like next time. <laughs> exactly. So I'm grieving that. And I think a lot of us are grieving what we had, the plans we had for this year, the um, the work we were going to do, the, you know, all the goals we had set. It's like I am in a state of, I'm not even processing the day to day. I'm just stuck on just grieving this shock to our lives, how they, it just turned upside down so quickly. And I also say to people, as somebody's gone through insecurity as a, as a kid who went to war, as a refugee, then came to Australia, you know, this is sort of triggering in the sense that, you know, it, there is that insecurity once again. There's that sense of upheaval that some of us have already had before. And we thought we were safe in Australia. We thought, you know, we'll never go back to those days. There's a level of triggering that's also happening for the migrants and I think refugee population. And anyone who's had other forms of trauma, I think, where you've had insecurity and as you're watching people lose their minds over toilet rolls and, and buying all the pasta and people have never baked in their lives, want to now bake all of a sudden so there's no flowers you flower in the shops you're watching this panic happen and then you are triggered by that panic as you're mm -hmm. watching it. even if you don't feel panic you're watching the people panic so then you panic or you think you have something to panic about it's all a little bit unsettling but to be positive on the other hand oh it's just like take a breath mm -hmm. i take it one minute at a time sometimes one hour at a time one day at a time i'm trying not to think too forward ahead of when is this going to be over but just stay focused and still you know focus on what i can control i can still do work in, mm -hmm. in, in just change in a different format i can do podcasts i can raise awareness about the things i care about i can spend quality time with my baby you know he's become a personal trainer now <laughs> so i post this i will have body by sammy his name is sammy body by sammy the, the, the video will be out if i survive all those personal training sessions you know you know, the, the, the quality time with my baby. Yes. I Ooh. love that. <laughs> well, has it taught, has this taught, experience so far taught you anything about yourself or the world that you didn't realize before? Uh, I think we take so much for granted. We really do. We get very complacent and we get very comfortable. 
But what this has probably taught me is life can change so quickly. And it's something I sort of had known because my life has had different mm-hmm. upheavals. And I have sort of seen how, you know, one minute I think I'm okay and I'm comfortable. Something comes from left field. Even with my work, you know, I think I'm cruising along and some, you know, I get to go on a curve, curve ball and it's like, oh my God. But then I bounce back. I find a way. But I think for me, it's that in this period, it's that I'm realizing just how much attached I am to my work from an identity perspective, you know, how much time that takes up in my life. And, and I love it. And I'm happy that I, I get to make a difference in, in my community and in, in my world um, and that I fight for the things I believe in. But not being able to do that, it, it, that is hard. Like, mm. I, I don't know who I am in some ways, because it's not my whole identity, but it is a huge part of my identity that I do the work I do, that I am constantly thinking, how do I make a difference today when I wake up, whether it's, you know, answering a phone call with a friend who's going to DV or whether it's negotiating to ensure that a woman who's experienced FGM gets to act, access med- medical care or support or whether it's working with politicians around policy. I'm always doing something and to be so tied down at the moment, not being able to be out and about to have those meetings and do that work, but having to find a new way to do that work. It's an adjustment period to change the way you see the world, to see your place in the world. Um, and it, it's interesting. So I'm doing a lot of reflecting because I mm. think it, it's, it's a perfect time for reflection. But I am just so grateful on the other hand that I have all this free time mm. to go through, to do nothing. Because you see, I don't usually have time mm-hmm. to do nothing. So in a way, it's a blessing to have nothing to do in a way I actually am forcing myself to accept that. And I actually had a, a, a convo with a friend a couple of weeks ago who was able to remind me that it is okay if all I do during this period is survive and get myself and my son through it. And it was the validation I needed. And I hope yep. people listening to this, hopefully maybe somebody needs this validation. Whoever you are, whatever your work is, whatever your identity is, it is absolutely okay if all we do right now is survive this. Mm-hmm. We are going through a, a pandemic. It is traumatic. It's a global trauma. It's a national trauma. It's an in family trauma. It's an individual trauma. There are layers to what we're experiencing. If all we do is survive this, if all you do is get you and your child through this, if you're a single parent, if all you do is get you and your family through this, if all you do is get our community and our nation through this, that's okay. Everything else is actually extra. If that's all you do is just Netflix, eat a lot, snack 24 <laughs> hours a day, um, try to exercise but fail at it horribly, uh, try to play with your child 24 hours a day and you now have back pain and you're tired and your head hurts and you don't understand maths and science, so you're trying to homeschool them. If all you do is survive, I think that's an achievement. That is the only achievement. I'm happy with that. I love that. That is the best perspective. I thank you. Thank you for that. I love that so much. Now, Khadija, with all of my guests I interview, um, well, usually it isn't, we're not in the midst of a p- pandemic. So usually I start <laughs> with this question. <laughs> I love to get a feel of what life was like for growing up. And for you, you have a particularly remarkable story. Can you take me right back to your childhood? those early years in Sierra Leone? I guess your childhood is uh, segregated into two layers there was Sierra Leone and then there was when you fled Sierra Leone so can you take me right back there please 
Ah, well, I I had an interesting childhood, I have to say. Um, I was born in Sierra Leone in the west of Africa, and most people wouldn't even know where Sierra Leone is. And for people who do, it's because they watch Blood Diamond with Leonardo was in it, and people just like Leonardo because <laughs> I think he's hot. Um, and there was a movie called Blood Diamond about us, so I think that's probably the only sort of... Um, probably contemporary connection to Sierra Leone but yes I was born all the way across the world in west of West Africa and I my I come from a very interesting family my grandfather on my mother's side was a chief which technically makes me a princess but you know it's okay everyone you don't have to go around going princess Khadija it's okay I've graduated <laughs> to queen Khadija it's all right just just a queen and we'll be fine um but <laughs> I come from both sides of my family being chiefs so leaders basically I come from a long line of leadership um well, well that's not surprising at all, is it, knowing you now? No, it's not. And it's not surprising. My son is petty as hell as well. I see it already in the next generation coming up. But my, my grandfather, both sides of my family, had multiple wives. And I say this all the time because I think people need to understand the family dynamics is complex. But my mother's father, my grandfather, had three wives. And, you know, they all lived in one house. And it, it, that, that is quite fascinating when I think about at that time and age, how that happened and what the impact of that on my mom and our family history. So I have a big family as a result, like a lot of uncles, a lot of aunties, a lot of cousins. And in the day of, you know, this day and age of dating online, I'm thinking all the time, I better not swipe right on a cousin. Like, I better <laughs> not fucking swipe right on somebody I'm related to out here in the streets, okay? I have no time and energy to accidentally date a cousin. I'm just saying. <laughs> anyway. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> if da- online dating isn't hard enough, you now have to contend with not dating a cousin. <laughs> it can happen. Those multiple wives, that's just my mother's side. Then on my father's side, also that grandfather had multiple wives. I am just saying that I am drowning in cousins. It, it, it's possible that I can swipe right on a cousin. I'm telling you, it is so, <laughs> there's such a high chance of it that I need to do a family tree. If I'm dating like a black man, I'm like, let's do a family tree. Let's <laughs> sort through this because I ain't going to have weird wonky babies out here in the streets. Anyway, back to Sierra Leone. <laughs> <laughs> nice little side note. <laughs> That's a like, little side note of single mom dating. We can talk about that later. But, um, <laughs> but no, my family was interesting. For me, I suppose what stood out is that, you know, our lives were normal until they were not normal. So I became a refugee at the age of three, which is quite young. My son is now five, you know, it's very interesting. And my family had to flee Sierra Leone because my, my family was so politically connected. It sort of put a target on our back. And my mom, I was raised by a single mom. My mom was able to get me and my little sister out of Sierra Leone. We ended up in Gambia, which is another county in West Africa. And we lived there for a couple of years, you know. Um, And I said to people all the time, I didn't have a normal child in the sense that I I could hope or dream of a future. It was more living day to day, pretty much like what we're going through right now. And I think maybe that's the triggering part for people like me, going through day to day, not knowing if you're going to have food, not knowing if your mom is going to get killed, not knowing if you're going to end up as an orphan, not knowing if we're ever going to see our family back, if we're going to ever go back to Sierra Leone, cut off from culture and community. Are you seeing how this is all coming back Mm. during the pandemic? It's Mm. very eerie, the the similarities. I'm not feeling safe as, as, as girls. I mean, it was my mom and two daughters in a world where sexual violence was right, Arrived. like it was just everywhere um and 
not yeah not having a teddy bear not playing playing and being happy it was just this sense of there were no guarantees and for me you know it was just i i look back at that time and and i look back now i, I look at my son who gets to go to a playground and laugh mm -hmm. and and he gets to dream and he has fantasies and imagination and and you know I, I didn't have the luxury of all of that. It just seems so foreign. As I watch him, as he's growing up, it's almost like I get to connect to the little Khadija in a way by virtue of having a child. It's like I'm going through my own childhood, but rewriting it in a way where I can have innocence and, and play with him. We play and I, 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 we do story time. And some of the books I'm reading now with him, I, I never had reading time, like fairy tales and all of that. Like I'm reading and I'm enjoying it as much as he's enjoying it because it's almost like I'm reparenting, if that makes sense, the word I would use it. I'm reparenting myself as I parent my son. It's interesting, isn't That's it? Amazing. But yeah. So, but then, you know, we went Gambia and just before we came to, you know, we went through the refugee process. My mom subjected me to FGM, female genital mutilation, which I'm sure we will go into later, but that experience also would change my life and would define my life because I'll go on to decide that that is a practice and a human rights violation that I will need to fight and stop. And that, of course, puts me at odds with my mama. But then, you know, my mom applied for refugee status and we got lucky that, you know, we were deemed worthy refugees. I use the word deemed because people actually decide whether you're worthy to be even considered a refugee. And even when you're deemed a refugee, that doesn't always mean that that's the end of it. It's a long battle and struggle to find safety. And we were granted refugee status and Australia decided to take us in. So we arrived in Australia on the 9th of June, 2001. Never forget that date because it's quite important and amazing mm. that we were lucky and privileged to be one of those few families that were offered that. So we arrived in Adelaide, little Adelaide. <laughs> um, and when we got here, it was cold. There were no people in the streets. It was very strange. <laughs> I had to wear winter clothes for the first time in my life. As somebody went to a tropical, I had a tropical background. Now it was cold. I had to wear three jeans. The, I did. I doubled them up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will never forget the first time my mom was cooking. Well, the first time we went to the city, we went to the mall. There were so many Asians. My mom thought we were, we were dropped off maybe in the wrong country because she didn't know <laughs> Australia was so multicultural. She's like, I think they brought us to the wrong place. Maybe we need to tell the government we were meant to go to Australia. It had to be explained to her that we were in Australia. Um, when we tried to catch the bus for the first time and people were staring at us like we were aliens from another planet. Wow. When we discover, discovered the Asian shop grocery and realized Asian veggies and Af our veggies were very similar. And we were so happy to find chili because we eat spicy food. Um, but then the most probably one of the most memorable things that ever happened was this one time my mom is cooking. The fire alarm goes off. She thinks like somebody's trying to kill us. So we all rush outside. Oh, God. And then she pushes me back into the house. She's like, go check what that noise is. And it was only the smoke alarm. But my mom was so terrified. But A, bad parenting sending Khadija in to investigate <laughs> what the fuck was happening in that house. Thank you very much. Sacrifice me. Thank you, you know. Um, but everything was so new and foreign. It was like we were babies who had to learn to crawl all over again, understand the Australian system, understand the nuance of this new culture. But also for the first time in our lives, we were minorities as black, 
women as as people were refugee had a refugee status you know we, we people spoke eight languages uh, english was the last one not the most fluent you know my mom being a single mom raising two daughters in a new world in a new environment with no access to community support and no established network having to start all over again it, it, it it's been a ride those early days it's been a ride but how far from that to now pandemic Khadija <laughs> <laughs> so you did say you know it takes a long time to be deemed a refugee it took 10 years is that right you were a refugee in Gambia it did. I was a refugee until three and we didn't leave we came to Australia in 2001 so you would say I stopped being a refugee on the 9th of June 2001 wow. by virtue of that or maybe when they gave us the visa whatever it is but I would say it's when on the 9th of June, when we got here and had a new home, is when I stopped being a refugee. But what's funny is that all the paperwork since then still requires that I identify as a refugee. Does that make oh. sense? So, official, yes, I still have to tick that box that um, you don't stop being a refugee in a strange way, not in a technical way. I'm technically not a refugee. A refugee is somebody seeking refuge. I am no longer seeking refuge. Yeah. The moment we arrived in Australia, we stopped seeking refuge because we found refuge. But the way this stigma and the way things are systematically played, you still have to continuously tick that box in, in the Medicare forms when we seek it. It says, are you a migrant? Are you a refugee? Where were you born? You're constantly being reminded that that is your history. Yep. That's your past. And it, it has a psychological element that you then always, almost feel like you never are a true Australian. It's like that question of where are you from? that you don't belong here, you can't be from here. I mean, I find that funny that my son, Sam, is born here by virtue of being a black man or black boy who continuously be asked where he's from. And he will say, I am from Port Adelaide. They'll go, no, 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 where are you from? Mate, I said I am from Port Adelaide, okay? And they'll be like, no, where's your mom from? I don't know where that woman is from. <laughs> so it will be that. It will be yeah. that constant affirming that you don't belong here. You're from somewhere. You're not a genuine Australian. So even though I am not a refugee, you will notice that it comes up a lot that that is my background. I, I mean, I am a refugee advocate. I, re I advocate for the rights of refugees. I am I, I, in that space, but I'm actually not a refugee, but I'm constantly reminded of that. Yeah. So it's like, it's like part of your identity and it doesn't go away. It's just what it is. Yeah. It's funny. It's actually very funny. You mentioned, and if you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to discuss it. You mentioned that your mum brought you here as a single mum. Did you, when was the last time you saw your dad? Well, my dad was actually killed during the war. So um, we, so it's, I was young. Wow. Um, so my mom, by virtue of that, had to raise us and keep us safe. So I, I was brought up by a single mom um, and a woman who tried her very best to do to do that job and role, but very complicated relationship there as well. Um, yeah. But I think being raised by a single mom who got us through war, got us through Gambia in a non-official refugee camp, got us all the way to Australia, that is a fucking achievement. That's incredible. She, she, she got her daughters to safety. She, she got us here. Um, and while, yes, Australia is also not safe in new ways, whether it's racism, uh, domestic violence and, and, and sexism and racism and other things. Yes, it's not safe in other ways. She got us away from bombs. She got us away from that form of insecurity. And mm. by virtue of bringing us to Australia, gave us a second chance at life. I think that is amazing. And to all the refugee moms out there who 
right now, whether they're locked up in detention centers, refugee moms in Syria and in war zones where bombs are dropping, who are just trying to look after their babies, those pregnant women who are just trying to, they're going to give birth in war zones and in, in detention centers, in prisons all over the world, including Australia. My heart goes out to those moms. Those women are doing the impossible in, in, in terrible situations. And I think sometimes we forget those silent heroes mm. and what it takes to, to create safety for one's child, you know, or, or for one's children. It's, it's remarkable. Well, you've got that to compare as well, considering you had your son here and you can look at, yeah, I guess it, does it give you that newfound appreciation for what your mom did and what she went through? And I know there is, it's complex there, um, but does it give you an understanding of what life must have been like for her and why that led to her making the decisions that she did make? Oh, yes. You know, I think our parents are complex people. They're nuanced. We see them as our parents, but they're actually more than that. They were also somebody's child. They have hopes and dreams, and there's nuance to their experiences. And I think, you know, when you're growing up as a child, you know, you see your parent through one lens only. You are my parent. Mm -hmm. That's it. When you become a parent, that shifts. It's almost like you can see through your parents' eyes now because you are now in a different role, you know, um, and you now sort of get to, I think, have compassion. That I know something that has grown for me, to have compassion for my mom in, in a nuanced way. I always felt for her. Like I say to my friends all the time, sometimes I'm naughty now as an adult because I was not naughty as a kid. I, 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 I was a goody two-shoe because I, I really never wanted my mom to be angry. I never wanted her to be upset. I always just thought, you have done so much. You just deserve a good daughter. You just deserve somebody who does what you say, does well at school because you don't need a single more headache. That was my perception that my mama had gone through so much. I just thought the only thank you I can give you is to be the best version. It's to be, it's to be a good daughter, basically, yeah. to be a good daughter because you don't need no more tears. You don't need any stress. So I worked hard at school. I wasn't out having coffees with friends. I didn't do sleepovers. I put my head in the sand, got to school, just really wanted to be a good daughter. I wish that was rewarded. It wasn't. <laughs> you won every other award, so you may as well win that one too. <laughs> hey, I was a good daughter. I'll tell you that. Everyone will tell you that. I look back and I think, you know, she did the best she, she could. She made horrible decisions, numerous ones, for sure. Um, um, and we definitely, my sister and I had a hard childhood but what i can tell you is that my mom is one badass woman who <laughs> you know she <laughs> she did not you don't fuck with that woman <laughs> I'll tell you that you did not fuck with her she she had values and, and and she stood up for those values and i grew up being told my mom would say to us all the time khadija you know education is better than silver and gold the more i get older the more i remember all these things she, the wisdom she passed on education is better than silver and gold She's basically saying having an education is better than being rich or wealthy. When we were in Sierra Leone, my mom missed out on going to study nursing. She wanted to be a nurse. She finished school. She wanted to be a nurse, but she missed the uh, application for nursing. So her dad said to her, you know, don't sit and wait until the next opening comes from the nursing school. Why don't you go do something else? So she became a teacher. When we fled Sierra Leone and we were in Gambia, if my mom didn't have an education, we would have been in a worse situation. But also, if my grandfather had not sent my mom and her sisters to school at a day and age where you did not send your daughters to school, you sent your son to school. So my grandfather was an original feminist, okay? Mm. Well, he did have multiple wives, so we could question his feminism a little <laughs> bit. But regardless, 
<laughs> he sent his daughters to school at the time when you didn't send them to school. You send your sons to school. They could get educated. Your daughters were going to be wives. But my grandfather actually rejected that premise. My mom said, if my grandfather found her in the kitchen, he gave his wives hell for making his daughter be in the kitchen. She should be reading a book, wow. is what he said to her. So by virtue of her being educated, when we were as a single mom with two daughters in a new country, once again, on her own, she was able to provide for us. She was able to keep us safe. So by then, then we came to Australia. She then decided she would actually go pursue nursing. She pursued nursing as a single mom with two kids in a new country, with English not as a first, second, or even a third language. She went back and studied. And I can tell you, she now has her master's in nursing education. She's combined her teaching history with nursing. So I look back and I go, education is better than silver and gold. She's right. That education literally changed the course of our family's life and gave her daughters opportunities and gave us a chance to understand that our, you know, there was, there's so much more to us than, you know, um, the wealth that you can lose through war, you lose wealth. You, you, you can't carry your gold and your diamond and your jewelry. We left everything behind except the, the clothes on our back. So it would have meant nothing to us, but because she had education, something that was up here, that was able to provide for us, you know. Um, another thing my mom did, which is really remarkable when we grow it up, was that she refused for anyone to compliment me and my sister based on our physical appearance. Mm -hmm. Nobody was allowed to tell us we were pretty. She said, tell them they're smart. <laughs> I was like, why? She's like, mm -mm, beauty fades. I don't want to raise daughters who think what they look like is the most important thing. I want you to be women of substance. So people... I want them to compliment you on what's up here, not what mm. is on the outside. So I spent years not being told I was pretty. I didn't even know I was pretty girl. I, like, it took a while. Now I'm still adjusting. I'm like, I look in the mirror. I'm like, you're so pretty girl. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're cute. You're yeah. It took years because I didn't know. And I remember when we got to Australia, and, you know, we had to tell the people who my mom didn't knew and couldn't tell. They weren't allowed to tell us we were pretty. They'll be like, oh, you got such beautiful girls. And my mom would roll her eyes frowning. And I'm like, what is this word? Beautiful and pretty. <laughs> Yeah. What is this new word? Because I, I grew up being told I'm smart. I'm, I was smart and I am smart and that I'm intelligent. And, you know, I have so much more going for me than just how I physically look. So becoming a parent, yes, has definitely given me, I think, a new insight to the woman who raised me and who she is and the challenges she had to face. But more than that, I actually think she did the best that she could possibly have done. So I actually, and I said this to people, I'm like, I love my mom. I've never not loved her, but I do hold her completely accountable though for the, her, mm. her choices. And I, I think we can love people and hold them accountable. We can love people and be able to ask more of them. We can love people and be able to challenge them. They're not mutually exclusive whatsoever to love them and still be able to also call them out when their behaviors are not healthy, when their behaviors are toxic. Um, um, I think we can do that because we do know family violence is rife in Australia. We know abuse is rife. So we can love people, but still, I think, be able to draw lines that say what, knowing what we deserve and knowing that we deserve safety and respect. And if that's not on the table, we can certainly do what we need to do to ensure we have that safety and respect. So... Life is complex. Relationships are complicated. They're Abs not black and white. Absolutely. You've spoken uh, on, I think, other podcasts and things you've done about how when you got to Australia, you were suffering, you suffered from some post-traumatic stress disorder. What did that yes. look like for you while trying to, I guess, blend into this new culture and these new people and these new, this new way of life? How did that all, what did that all look like? 
Uh, it was horrible. My earlier years in Australia, the first couple of years, probably the first 10, because I've now lived in Australia for, is it 19, 19 years? 2001? Would it be 19, mm. 20 years? 19, yeah. It's yeah. Been a while. 19 years. Um, those probably first 10 were probably the, the most horrible, and then it, it still got horrible, but got better in some ways. But I think... It was the shock of coming from one cultural mm -hmm. context to another cultural context, having had those refugee background of insecurity and unsafety. And even though we thought we were safe in Australia from a physical perspective, I guess, bombs went dropping everywhere. People weren't trying to kill us. But being a minority, that sucked. Like people, like I said, people who stare at us. We'll go into the bus and people will put their bags like in the chair and they didn't want to sit with us. People will call me a black monkey, you know, tell me to go back where I came from. Um, really? This hyper yeah, this hyper-awareness of my blackness for the first time, which before was never a thing because everyone was black around me. I didn't even know I was black. I was, am I black when everyone is black? We're all black, you know? It was just all of a sudden, it's like, you're so black. It's like, what the hell does that even mean, you know? Um, and I remember when my mom sent me to a girl's school, first of all. I went to English school first. I, I st didn't stay there long because I'm a smart cookie, very quickly, adapted. So I was sent to, um, my mom enrolled me to Mitchum Girls High School. I don't know why she sent me to a girl's school. But I think her thinking at the time was that she thought girls were less racist. She doesn't know anything, that woman. Let me tell you. Knows nothing, okay? <laughs> girls are catty as hell. So I was thrown into this girl's school where there was no diversity, like 600 white kids. There wasn't even an Aboriginal kid there. There wasn't an Asian kid there. It was yeah. just me with my blackness. And the racism daily from being laughed at because of my accent. Mind you, I spoke eight languages. This kid freaking spoke one language. Yeah. And some of them couldn't even do that <laughs> Bitch, well enough. Bitch, please, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It was like that. Bitch, bye. Um, they couldn't even speak that one language properly, mind you. But I spoke eight freaking languages. I had just come from the most horrific experience a kid could go through. I was trying to adjust to a new education system. Everything was so new. Just trying to mind my business. But these kids would laugh at my accent, would laugh at apparently my food. My food smelled funny, you know. Um, constantly ask me questions like, were people naked in Africa? Did we wear clothes? Did I have a tiger? As a pet, did I ride a tiger to school? Oh did you God. ride a kangaroo to school this morning? <laughs> no, just sit your ass down. Um, <laughs> it was horrible, and teachers in class will have examples in, you know, in lessons, or, you know, HIV, where Khadija is from, you know, poverty, where Khadija is from. It's oh like, my can God. you stop using me as your example? I am not your example, and you're stigmatizing me and my culture and my heritage. Oh, it, it was... It, it was hard five years of going through that in the education system, but also just being out and about and not feeling safe. You know, and my mom having to explain to me what racism was, you know, she had not experienced racism either before because we were all black where we were from. Everyone was black. And all of a sudden, it's like having to explain to her daughters that because of the color of our skin, something we, we could not change and did not choose, something that was inherently just part of who we were, other people saw that as being a bad thing and that those people thought we were inferior, and these people thought we were worthy of being, of being uh, mistreated. And as a kid, you have to remember, I was 13 when we came to Australia. You know, you're going through hormones, you're, you're a teenager, you're thrown into a whole new world. I have a lot already going for me, and then you throw racism into that. I just couldn't make sense of it. Um, and, you know, I would later on be diagnosed with, with um, PTSD at the time, but years later, it will become that complex PTSD is actually what I have. So complex post-traumatic stress disorder. 
but it was like I couldn't sleep. I, I, I didn't have appetite. I had insomnia. My tummy hurt all the time mm-hmm. from the stress and the anxiety. I was hyper vigilant because I thought I felt so unsafe in a new way. So bombs went dropping everywhere. Nobody's trying to kill me, but I felt very unsafe as a little black girl. I felt very threatened. You know, I'd be in class and I was jumping like somebody come behind me, I would jump. It was just this constant awareness of I am not safe. My I was so hyper aware of my blackness because it was like almost like all anyone saw. I wasn't mm. a person. I was just a color. Um, you know, and then sometimes in classes, the teachers would put like a video where they're trying to teach a lesson in history and it'll be a war movie. And I will be in tears bawling out because, you know, gunshots were, were going everywhere. It's like, why would you do that? And I did spend a lot of time in the sick room crying, just really been very upset because it was just so overwhelming um and you know my mom couldn't even help because this was also new she just wanted us to toughen up which didn't help because what i wanted was a hug and to be told it was gonna be okay and her response was usually just get on with it you'll be fine just you know just toughen up it's like it's not a matter of toughening up it's a matter of this is some hard stuff i am dealing with here yeah. this is, this, 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 i am you know i've been through a lot and now we were meant to be safe. You told us we were going to be safe and we're not safe in that way. I need support. But what was interesting is that at school, you know, I had this woman, um, Miss Shannon, who worked in the library. Miss Shannon realized that obviously school wasn't going well for me. I'll be in the library crying in a corner somewhere, pretending I'm reading a book. I've always loved reading, but usually I was crying while reading said book at the same time. And I would hide there because it was the only quiet place or the sick room I could be in. Um, and she decided to give me my first teddy bear. And when I said this to people, they, they're shocked. I had my first teddy bear at the age of th- 13. She got me a teddy bear, and she went and got a little um, tape, one of those radio tapes that people don't use no more. But back then, in 2001, they had them. She got a CD, the Angeli, uh, Angeli Kojo CD. Angeli Kojo is a singer from South Africa. I think she's from South Africa. I think she's from South Africa. Yeah. And while in the sick room, she would play the CD, she would give me the teddy bear, and I, we would just sit there. This woman is not a nurse. She's not a psychologist. Wow. She could not comprehend what I was going through. That school has never had a black kid, have never had diversity, and would not know what to do with a kid who was going through uh, flashba- flashbacks and, um, and just the stress of being, uh, being black at school. Oh, everything was too much, and nobody could help me. But this woman, through her kindness and compassion, gave me a teddy bear, put a CD that would play an African music for me and cover me with a blanket. So for the next five years, that was our routine. If I get scared at school, somebody oh. called me a black monkey, you bitch, whatever they did, bumped me while walking in the, in the hallway, write stupid messages to each other about me, sneak every time I open my mouth, just the most horrific thing. And I'll go to the sick home to just lie down. I had a teddy bear and I had this... African music just playing, reminding me, once again, my culture wasn't the problem. My heritage wasn't the problem. Something to remind me of home in an interesting way. The home wasn't safe, obviously, but there are parts of my culture that are so beautiful. But that's what she did. And it's funny, you know, those little signs of kindness. And later on, I'll end up calling her my white mommy because it was funny. She gave me more comfort than in some ways not to throw my mom under the bus than my own mom did going through those challenges. And later on, I'll have a principal who will come to that school, Miss Penny. And she will quickly also pick up that, you know, a lot was happening and I needed support. And she would let me come to her office. And she's a vice principal, mind you. I'll sit there 
and we'll just chat. She'll just give me the time out I needed to just breathe in and out for a bit before I would go back to class and get on with work. So it was hard. Um, and I think sometimes we people think that when refugees like me or people who have had refugee experience say those things, the challenges we face, that we're saying we don't appreciate Australia, that we don't appreciate having the second chance at life, that we don't appreciate having a home. They, they're not mutually exclusive, that you can be grateful to, to come to Australia and have a new life, but also that we can acknowledge that racism is rife in mm-hmm. Australia and not just for people like me. Australia was built on racism and, you know, in the experience of our First Nation people, let's not forget that. We're just the new people have been, people have been racist though, but Australia has always had racism as part of its history. We're just the new kids in the block experiencing another form of racism and that, you know, I'm grateful that I live here, but it doesn't, it's not contradictory to the fact that as a black woman and a woman of color, I go through the world facing discrimination and racism. Um, and you were saying before, wow, somebody calling me a black monkey. A couple of last year, I was called a black cunt while trying to get milk at Coles by a white man in the parking lot. Didn't know him from a bar or soap. He called me a black cunt. I don't even, I don't think I even bought the milk. I went home and dad was like, mm-hmm. did you get milk? I said, no, I just need to lie down because I tried to get the milk, but somebody called me this horrible name and I can't, I, I can't even process that I can't go to the shop and buy milk in peace without somebody feeling the need to name me in such a disgusting way. Mm. But I, I can't. That's, that was just 2019. Wow. That was in 2001. Not much has really changed in our world. But yeah, so, but I think the positive, and for people who have mental health issues who are listening, is that I went through that. So I had complex, I had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. But years later, I finally actually get assessed again properly. And my proper diagnosis was complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm actually happy to say to those listening that this month of April would make it two years since... No, no, no. no, no, no. Two years. I need to calculate something quickly. 2020, 19, <laughs> Two years of being in remission. Wow. So I have been in remission for my complex PTSD for two years because I, a couple of years ago, I think just before my son was born, I had been, I had really committed to therapy. Then after he was born, I really knuckled down on therapy and went and saw a trauma specialist. So I spent three years doing intensive trauma counseling and trauma work. I mean, I'm talking about weekly appointment, not missing. I think I missed only one appointment that three years, my therapist said, because I had a tooth, a wisdom tooth taken out and we couldn't actually talk. So it's like, okay, just lie down and rest. So I didn't actually go. But a weekly appointment without fail, some of those appointments were so brutal. I would take the week, a week off work to just literally be home crying, like really feeling those emotions that I had bottled up for those years. But there is there's hope on the other side. So now two years of being in remission, for complex PTSD, because I did the work, I showed up, and I think I realized that I did not want to live life through the lens of trauma anymore. Yeah. Um, I couldn't control the things that have happened to me. I, I, I couldn't have protected the little girl, but what I could do was choose the future I had. I had control of, over that. What I could choose, what, what kind of parent I wanted to be, what I could choose was that I was going to stop that intergenerational trauma and circle of abuse and circle of, of, of toxicity. I could stop that, and it started with me, I guess, going to heal the pain and the wounds that had been inflicted on me, and then through that healing, then be able to, I guess, grow. And it's almost like a new version of Khadija was created. I was more like a different, so I'm such a different person, but 
really grow into truly who I am to, to my power, growing to my power, growing to my awesomeness and queenness, if you want to put it that way. Um, and it was the best, I think, investment I could have done for myself. Oh, so. you made me cry. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. <laughs> I'm, that's incredible. Two years. The, the testament of good therapy, isn't it? It's just, it's, li- it's absolutely life-changing. And you can be sitting, people can be listening now and this whole podcast is turning the worst things that have happened to you into something positive. And people can be listening and be too scared to do that work because it is scary. And sometimes it feels a bit easier being on the other side and being a bit ignorant. But once you dive head first, you know, you're a testament to the benefits and what, it, what you can reap mm. from that as well. So thank you for sharing oh. that. No <laughs> problem. It is scary. Of course it is. We must acknowledge that mental health, it, it, it's a, it can be such a, a shackle. And, and you know what? There were times when, you know, it was, the trauma was my best friend. Okay, mm. let's acknowledge. Sometimes it becomes our identity to be in that state, you know? It, 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 it's who we are. It's all we have known. To, to, to imagine a life without it, it actually was strange. When my therapist said, Khadija, I think we're going to be wrapping up and um, you are in remission. I'm like, what the fuck is remission, first of all? You hear that about other, like cancer and stuff like remission. I thought I was going to have to be in therapy for the rest of my life. That's, mm-hmm. I was signed up for it. I'm like, I will have to be in therapy for the rest of my life, okay? A lot of shit has happened. Okay, when I fe- the first time I got to therapy, we did a board and got all my traumas. Let me tell you, there was a lot of stuff. And then we went to them one at a time. But when he said to me, no, 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 you don't need to come back anymore. I think you're actually right. I went, no, 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 I have to keep coming. Sorry, you are wrong. Because even though I've been doing the work, I still can see a life away from trauma. Because it had been such a normal part of my life that this is how I went through the world, scared, jumpy, paranoid, distrustful, feeling unworthy, feeling... Like, I didn't have much, like, to, to hope for. I mean, it just, it was this power. I was like, no, this is who I am. This is what life is. I had resigned myself to it. So, so even I was doing the work, and now this person is telling me, it's, it's you're okay. You have to choose. You, I'm like, no, 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 no. I'll still keep coming. It's okay. I'll, he's mm. like, no, no, you're not coming. So I understand, you know, for those listening going, oh, well, she's just strong. Oh, no, no, no. There's no hope for me. No, it's different. Actually, I'm sorry. It's possible for every single one of us. It, it actually is. Um, mental health, it's a journey. So I, it's not I don't have a mental health anymore. I do. We all have a mental health. I still do self-care. I still have days when, you know, I'm like, oh, my cup is getting full. I, I, I need to slow down. Um, oh, that's a bit triggering. I can name it. Well, I need to step off. I need boundaries. It's a life journey. There's no point you get to and it's done, nada, you're finished. That, there's no such thing as that. But I think that, there is no more worthy investment than ourselves. And I think, so when you make that decision, I want more for me. When you make that decision, I want better for myself. When you make that decision, I want to live life through a different lens of healthiness and not my past controlling me, not the things that have happened to me controlling me. I want to be in control. I want to be in the driving seat. When you make that choice, that decision, that investment, I think... it's priceless and it, it's a journey. So it may start, you know, one appointment a month, one appointment a year. I don't know, whatever it takes, it takes for you. You just decide to start. Even while we are going through this pandemic, tele um, uh, appointments are still available. 
You know, you can still talk to somebody and finding the best therapist might, it's a journey as well. I didn't land in the first person. I didn't like the first person I met. It's like, I think your therapist is like choosing a husband. Let me tell you, a partner. It is <laughs> so a very true. important decision. This mm. person is going to see you naked in ways that maybe even a partner will never see you naked. When I mean naked, I mean emotionally naked, okay? My therapist has seen me in all my worst. I have been on his floor like I am like like a little born baby, like like in fetal position. I'm telling you, like bawling my eyes out. But in that room, on that floor, in that pain, was I able to rise up like a phoenix? Let me tell you. When we do therapy, when I go in for my maintenance or, or checkup, or when something comes, I'm like, okay, I need to talk to him. We sit there, and he go. He the question he usually ask me is, "Where's your safest place, Khadija? Can you picture it for me?" before we go into whatever we need to do. Do you know what? My therapist's office is my safest place. The place where I was the most broken, the place where I was the most naked, the place where I was the most fragile, vulnerable, where I'm not a mom, I'm not a daughter, I'm not a sister, I'm not an activist. I'm just a human, a person who's come with pain. That actually happens to be my safest place because I can be, I'm not anything. I'm just me. No walls, no facade, no, no mask. That's powerful. That, like, yeah. that is powerful for us all to have that chance to be somewhere we can put everything on the table, just put it all on the floor and go, somebody take it and help me. He helped me. He did that. So please, you know, invest in you. Look after you. You are the most important person you ever be. Whether you're a parent, a sister, daughter, whatever you are, you are actually still the most important person. As a mom, I know... I, I say all the time, happy mommy, happy baby. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Happy mommy, happy baby. When I look after me, when I'm my, my best, when I am taking care of me, when I invest in me, when I, I take time out to look after me, to breathe and, 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 and nourish myself in every way possible, I'm a better mom. Mm. I show up better. I give my son quality. I, I'm able to, to show up for him in ways I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't done the work. I can't do it. So and then they, they're the ones that miss out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I could listen to you speak all day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we haven't even got to the FGM stuff. There is so much to cover. I'm going to just, just black out the rest of your afternoon. <laughs> That's okay. I got now, nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah, true. We've got nowhere to be. Um, now there was a day that changed your world forever when you were volunteering for a women's health service and you opened a pamphlet. Can you talk to us about what you discovered that day? Oh, yes. So I, I had, we had come to Australia. I, I was at school. I think I probably was like in year nine, year 10. They're like, you have to do work experience. You know, you have to do work experience at some point in your high school education. My mom sent me to this center that was actually a health center. Um, and they don't do resumes because I was meant to be fixing up my resume so I could send it to um, a hospital because I decided I was going to do my placement in a hospital because back then Khadija was going to be a doctor, you know, heal the people was what I was about. Um, <laughs> and I went there to, to get my resume fixed. They don't actually do resumes because they were a health center, but when you're a refugee or a migrant who's come to Australia, you just think anyone can help you. You don't even really care what their specialty is. You just go, oh, I know somebody there. I think they can help me. So she sent me then to this lady called Renee who was running what was called the FGM education program. But I didn't know that. The program was under the Women's Health Center. 
I went to get my resume fixed. And I don't even think we fixed the resume, really, because that's not her job. But I sort of <laughs> stayed. I don't think we fixed it. <laughs> but I stayed and decided I would help out with what she was doing, which I didn't know what she was doing. But I knew she ran, run this program. She ran this program. Um, and that, you know, um, she had a lot of pamphlets and she did a lot of community education and training. And I just thought, you know what? It would be great for me to help out. So I've always been a kid and I've always, since I came to Australia, I was always super passionate about volunteering. It's actually one of my passions. I don't talk enough about it, but I have a passion for volunteering. I think it's such a good way to give back to your community, but also feel a sense of belonging. So I just thought I would volunteer. Like, don't fix my resume, but let me help you out. So I started helping her out, packaging her pamphlets and the, the, the brochures that she would put together for her workshops, not knowing what actually FGM stood for or what exactly the context of this program. I remember going to, with her to workshops where she's talking all about FGM and still not having a clue what the hell she was talking about. Wow. Because the language of female genital mutilation is not the language that, would, that was is used in my community. The language, um, and I don't remember FGM happening to me, first of all, for me to even connect the dot whatsoever. I have never had a conversation about FGM with my mom or anyone else. N complete secrecy. So, but what was interesting is that as I'm packing this pamphlet for her, I come across the one that has the types, not in words, but in actual picture. Because words mean nothing to you once again. English is not my first language. I could read something, doesn't mean I'm actually understanding the meaning, or, you know, and all of that. So, it had the pictures of the different types. And there are three main types of FGM, then there's a fourth random one. So type one of FGM, or I should actually start with saying what the definition is for people listening, like, who's, what's this FGM? FGM is the altering of the female uh, genital, genitalia for non-medical reason or cultural reason. So what we're saying is that FGM is when the genitals of little girls are cut off. So their clitoris, their lips down there, and then with type 3 even sewn up. So it is quite a brutal form of gender-based violence and domestic violence. And no, it is not male circumcision. For so people are going, well, it, it, it's not actually male circumcision, whatever. Male circumcision is cutting up, you know, the, the hood of the, the hood and all of that. And um, the reasons for it are medical, you know, cleanliness, and people still believe that it's necessary. I don't personally think male circumcision is necessary either. But the, the harm is not the same completely. Mm. The equivalent of male circumcision to FGM will be if you cut off a boy's whole penis. That wow. will actually be the equivalent. That's how brutal this is. But there are three main types of FGM. So type one is they might cut the hood of the clitoris or, or even just prick the hood of the clitoris so there's blood. Type two is when the whole clitoris is cut off, as well as maybe one set of lips. Girls, ladies listening, you know, we have lips, all these lips going on down there. One set of lips is cut off. Type three could be that everything is cut off and a lady is sewn up, a girl, so she has a tiny hole to barely pee and have her period. So most of her period is actually trapped inside. So when she goes to the bathroom, this is what it sounds like. Drip. 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 She's there forever. That's just her trying to pee, let alone have her period. So those are the main types of FGM. So as I'm looking at this, not from a descriptive perspective, but the pictures, something clicked in my head. You have to understand trauma is powerful. Childhood trauma, as a child, your brain goes, how do I protect you? How do I help you survive this. So we hear a lot of people later on in life remembering something, whether it's through a smell triggers a memory or a touch triggers a memory. You're watching something which then triggers you. We see triggers. 
for me, looking at that picture triggered my memory. Because before, I had no memory of right. FGM happening to me. I, I don't remember it. And as I looked at the picture, I looked at type 2 FGM, which is very common in West Africa, which is the one where they cut off the top, the, the, either the hood or the whole clitoris, and sometimes one set of lips. I'm looking at this picture going, hmm. Hmm. And then I started seeing pictures in my head. Wow. And I'm confused at this point going, what, 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 what is this? Like, it's like watching a movie in your head as the details are coming to, like a pictures are coming. I'm like, oh my God, this program is about girls like me. I went through this. This happened to me. I, th- I don't think I have words to describe to anyone what it felt like to have those, that, those memories come back but to also feel the pain associated with the memories. Because I was like transported back to Gambia, back in that hut, that old lady holding me down. My mom pinning me there as this lady takes this rusty knife and cuts away at, at my flesh. Like the pain, it's like I was, it's like I was st- visually feeling it, even now. I remember booking an appointment immediately with the family therapist that I was seeing. <laughs> and I sat there, I looked her in the face and said, and she was a white lady, I want to talk about this thing that happened to me. I think it's called FGM. But I don't, I don't think that's the word they use in my language. So I described to her what happened and her face. She's like, what the fuck am I going to do with this kid? It's literally what I read from her face. Like, what do I even do with this? And I'm going, she can't help me. Look at her mm-hmm. face. And I think it took days. I then went to my, um, this social worker who used to work at Multicultural Youth Essay where I used to volunteer. And I said, I need to tell somebody something. And I told her, I said, am I making these memories up? Like, can you have fake memories? She's like, what are you talking about? Tell me what's happened. So I told her, she's like, no. You're not making, this is something that's happened to you that's not coming back to you. And it all added up. Then the pain, I, I have no words to describe the pain. And I think all this is probably one of those interviews where I'm going to take, we go more slowly to actually describe what that felt like for me. The pain, the anger at some point kicked in. The why, because the why, why, why will you do this? Why would my mom do this? Why would she make this decision? Why was I put to this? What's the point of it? The why. Because I had now spent months at this center understanding that this thing was meant to be bad. This thing that this lady was talking about, this FGM. It has health consequences from, if you're you're lucky to not bleed to death, so it can be murder. You have infections, you have UTIs, infertility, cysts, fibroid, sexual dysfunction, uh, trauma, depression. It was the gift that literally fucking keeps giving. It doesn't stop. I'm going... Why would my mom want that for me? Why would she want that to be my reality? Like, this why, the why. I get bogged down by the why. And even now, 18 years of being an advocate and activist in this space, everyone gets bogged down with the why. Because you want to know why. We live in a world where people decide to take knives, scissors, anything they can find to mutilate the genitals of little girl. Why? And when the anger kicked in, oh, and I was angry. And people who know me know I'm a very passionate human. <laughs> so combine that passion with a bit of anger. 
quite explosive. And I, I grew up in a culture where you respect there's a hierarchy. God, then parents, and then everyone else. When this situation is God and then your mama, okay? It's your mama, that's it. You do not disrespect your mom. You do not ask questions. And I told you before, I'm a good girl, right? I'm a good girl. I was a please your mama sort of girl. But let's just say the little girl who went home that day was a sassy mouth, angry black young woman. She did not care for the rules that day. She did not care about upsetting her mom. She did not care about the fact that she knew she would get a smack. So I did stand far away from her while I was going to inter talk to her. I did not stand anywhere near reach where a hand might whack me on the head. So I'm smart. I may be angry, but I'm not stupid either. I went home. And I'm in a rage. Like, my little body was shaking. I'm thinking, I have now joined the dots. My mom has subjected me to FGM. She made me go through this pain. And I need to know why. Why the woman who gave birth to me, who's meant to protect me, and has protected me from other things. Mind you, she has protected me from other things. Why would she do this to me? So I went home and said, Mom, you did FGM to me. She said, what, what are you talking about? I said, you, you, you had FGM done to me. The language is not familiar to, to her. She's like, what are you talking about? I went, okay. You had somebody cut me down there. She went, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Very casual, yeah. But why will you do that to me? Why will you have somebody mutilate me? She's like, what is this mutilation you keep saying? It didn't add up to a mutilation. What's this word? She said, yes, I did that to you. It was for your own good. My own good. Yeah, I was a good mom. A good mom. Subjecting your daughters to that. Yeah, I was a good mom. I did my job. How was it your job to do that? She said, it's what I had to do back home. If, if we don't do that to you, then you're not clean, you're, you're dirty, you don't belong, and you have no control over yourself. What are you talking about having no control over myself? If a girl is not caught, a woman's not caught, the clitoris, it, it will drive her crazy. She will have no self-control. She just wants sex. She has no self-respect. She said, so I've done you a favor. If you, you have a man and you don't feel like having sex with them, you won't have sex with them. You won't get that itchiness down there because you're being controlled. And I'm looking at her like she's from another planet. I'm looking at her going... What are you talking about? None of this adds up. None of this justifies why you would do an act like this. And I was so angry. And, I'm, and I, it was just like, I, I can't. I don't even know. Like, it's like we're having two different conversations here. And it will be one of many conversations I will have with my mom to understand this. And as time went on, we'll have more conversations. And I'll come to understand for her, in that context of that patriarchal culture that told her that, the genitals and the clitoris particularly was dirty. It made women promiscuous, it needed to go. And if you did not cut it off, you did not belong in that society. You were dirty, you were unmarriageable, you did not belong there. She thought, she felt doing that act to her daughters was her being a good mom, was her doing her duty to ensure and secure our future. And I'm sitting there going, not acceptable to me, not acceptable. No, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. I am not buying, I am not sold on the fucking patriarchy's explanation for this. This is misogyny at its fucking best. And you have now convinced this woman that this is what they need to do. This is what, how they need to perform 
to be good mothers and good wives and good daughters. Fuck that. And he needs to stop. Sorry. So I remember the day I looked her in the eye, point my finger at her, which is so disrespectful once again. I'm lucky I didn't get a belt in that day. I was pushing it and said, it stops with me. She goes, what do you mean? I said, this stops with me. My mom is a victim as well. And that makes this very complicated. She's a victim of FGM as well as being a perpetrator of it. Very complex. That she had been subjected to it without consent against her will. But she came to accept it as what was necessary. She came to accept it that it was a good thing. She came to accept it that, well, this is just part of my culture. She then subject her daughters to it saying, this is what needs to be done as well for my daughters. Now her daughter's looking at her saying, this is unacceptable. This cannot continue. You're doing harm. This whole community is doing harm. What you're doing is treating little girls as if we're a threat. But a threat to who exactly are we a threat to? That our genitals are a threat. Our sexuality is a threat to who exactly? Men? Society? The patriarchal society that says that we are not deserving of pleasure, that we are only good for babies, that we are somehow needing to be controlled and subdued? Fuck that. So this stops. It stops with me. It stops in my generation. No other girl in our family will be subjected to this. My daughter, future daughters, if I have them, will not be subjected to this. And it stops in our community. So wherever I have influence, I'm putting all of you on warning. I'm giving you a warning. It's stopping. There were no words. It's like this generational conversation was happening. And she's shocked because I try not to challenge my mom. I, I'm sassy and I'm stoned, but I really did try to not challenge my mom because I just, like I said before, I, I empathize with my mom, sometimes to my own detriment. I really did prioritize how she felt. But push had come to shove. I was taking a stance and to hell with the consequences. And there were consequences. I lived with my abuser, in essence, mm -hmm. I did. And she fed me, she put a roof over my head, and I was calling her to task in a cultural context where you did not challenge your parents. And I wasn't just challenging her something small. I was challenging her on an old age, century, generation to generational practice that she holds to be true, that she holds to be necessary, that she thought was proud of, that she had done her job as a mom. I think feeding my son is my job as a mom. I think protecting him from the world, that even myself, I went to therapy to ensure that my trauma wasn't passed on to him. That's what I thought was necessary as a mom. She thought mutilating me was necessary as a mom. Do you see how nuanced and complex these conversations mm -hmm. are? And I like to unpack that because people sometimes go off just on the surface and the superficial. This is a very complex issue. What is not black and white about is that it's unacceptable. But the, 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 the nuance of the patriarchal pressure that those women have felt made them feel like this was something they needed to do. The internalized sexism, because, oh, they internalized that shit. I have aunties sitting around thinking that by virtue of having a low libido and not feeling, I guess, sexual um, desire or horniness, they were empowered. Mm. This is why my TED Talk was called My Mother's Strange Definition of Empowerment, because they think they're empowered. Yeah, and I'm like you are not empowered at all whatsoever you have not been empowered you have been abused 
Thank you so much for listening to part one of my conversation with the incredible Khadija Blah. You can follow Khadija at Khadija Blah on Instagram. As always, you can get in contact with me at Elizabeth Anil. If you can share this chat on your social media and tag me and Khadija, I'd be so grateful. Also, if you've got a spare sec to leave a review, hit five stars and subscribe. It'll help other people find Lemonade who perhaps really need to hear this kind of content. Stay safe and I'll be back with you on Thursday for another midweek squeeze and I'll have part two of this conversation ready for your ears next Monday. You won't want to miss it. It's epic. Thanks, guys. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.